0: Hello, thank you so much for listening to the Park Hill Church Podcast. My name is Evan Wickham, and my wife Sandy and myself and a fantastic team, we have the privilege together of leading Park Hill Church, a church that gathers in Point Loma, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Liberty Station, and we scatter throughout the week in homes we call Park Hill Communities. And that's, that's what we do. We gather and we scatter throughout the week as a community following Jesus in San Diego. And we're actually planting our first church out of Park Hill called Neighbor's Church. And that'll be led by Dan and Alexis Braga. And they are already meeting on Sunday nights to pray for what God wants for their community. And they'll be launching as a new church in the fall, and we're cheering them on We're going to be two sister churches in the city. I'm thrilled to see what Jesus is going to do uh, through our network. And so, I am recording this from the privacy of my garage studio. So, this is the Wednesday following Easter Sunday last Sunday was amazing. We had an Easter gathering outdoors. We usually meet indoors in Liberty Station. We met outside, and it was beautiful. A bunch of people showed up, and 13 people followed Jesus. And for the first time, they stepped into the waters of baptism and stepped into the kingdom of God, and it was so good to watch. And uh, we all ate and drank the bread and cup of Jesus. It was a great gathering. However, the audio... I would rather you not suffer through that live teaching audio for one reason, airplanes. Every two minutes, there was a 737 flying 200 feet above my speaking mic. And so, yeah, that would just be annoying. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the teaching, but in a podcast format. So it'll be way better anyways, quiet environment. I don't know if you're commuting or running or washing dishes or whatever you're doing right now. This will be... Um, a podcast unique teaching. So, the text will be Matthew 22, verse 23 through 33. Um, So, if you go to Park Hill, great. You know that we're going through the Gospel of Matthew on Sundays, and we're just following right along with what we have been doing. And uh, yeah, Easter is a tremendous day in the church calendar. Um, It's the day that Christians all over the world join together as a worldwide millennia-old multi-ethnic family declaring that Jesus is alive. The church has proclaimed this reality, the reality of Jesus' physical resurrection from day one. And it's not just because Christians are just some fringe group that believes in weird stuff. Like, we, Jesus followers, along with countless others around the world, actually believe in Jesus' resurrection on pretty good evidence. Like, just real quick, five reasons. Number one, the empty tomb. I mean, Jesus' dead body was put in a tomb owned by a well-known rich guy in Jerusalem, right outside the famous Jerusalem walls, and it was heavily guarded by Rome's finest like heavily armed militiamen from the world's most formidable army at the time. Roman soldiers guarded Jesus' tomb. So, the empty tomb should not have happened, but it did. And no one knew where the body went. And Christians make the claim that Jesus' body was raised from the dead and walked out of the grave. Another reason, the appearances of Jesus after His resurrection... Like, the biblical literature says that he was seen by 500 eyewitnesses, and that's according to ancient eyewitness accounts. And another reason, the transformed disciples. Like, these disciples, before Jesus, they were hiding out and afraid, and when Jesus got arrested, they ran away, and they were doubting and confused before Jesus rose. And then there was an event that took place that, for some reason, this event transformed their behavior from fear to boldness. Those same cowardly disciples ended up dying for the cause of Jesus in the face of lions and gladiators and other unmentionable torment. And so you got to ask, what event would have sparked that much boldness in them? Christians claim Jesus' resurrection was that event. And another reason, Jesus' impact on history and culture, I mean, hospitals were invented because of Jesus, because Christians claimed Jesus wanted his church to heal the sick. Schools, hospitals, the process of adoption in ancient Ephesus, and even today, like, people in general still can't get enough of this Jesus guy. Movies and magazines and articles and scholarship, Christian scholarship and secular scholarship, just surrounding this Jesus guy. Jesus' impact on history and culture can't be denied. And then finally, just a fifth quick reason that I think is great evidence for the resurrection is the experience of billions billions like i don 't know if you 're not a christian and you 're listening to this if you 're if you 're not a Christian and you 're listening to this Christian podcast, I want to say well done first of all, um, that is uh, honorable to listen to the perspective of those you may or may not agree with. I think that is the way forward for all of humanity to listen well um, secondly. Uh, if you are not a Christian, and you do know Christians, I would I would venture to guess that most of the Christians you know seem somewhat normal. I mean, apart from believing in stuff maybe you disagree with, they, they probably seem like regular nice guys or girls, apart from their belief in Jesus. They seem pretty normal, right? Like, uh, it's amazing that virtually every Jesus follower you will meet, like of the billions in the world, virtually every single one claims to have had some sort of personal experience with this Jesus, like some experience that changed them in some way. And this Jesus is the Jesus that Christians claim was raised from the dead. And as the gospel goes, we crucified Jesus God raised him from the dead. And then God gave Jesus authority over heaven and earth, life and death. And now Jesus' followers gather to worship him as Lord, longing for him to return and bring resurrection to all of creation. This is the good news. God is coming to heal the world with his perfect judgment and power. And this is what we celebrate on Easter Last Sunday, like I said, was Easter, which according to the church calendar, marks the first week of a seven-week Easter tide. Yeah, there's seven Sundays in Easter, according to the ancient tradition, which I love. And this is what we celebrate on Easter. This is the shape of hope. It's resurrection, like the physical renewal of everything. And if we're honest with ourselves. Like, if you're honest, this is what you long for. This is what we all long for. Like, everywhere we look in the news, every every injustice, we want to be made right. The reason bad news sells is because it creates a longing in our hearts for more healing to take place, for the things that are sad to come untrue, <laughs> for God to reverse the curse, to use ancient Christian language, that all broken relationships and broken hearts would be healed. So, this brings us to the text in Matthew. um, Matthew 22, starting in verse 23. It's fascinating that we're in this passage on the first week of Easter. Uh, When we built out the Matthew teaching path as a teaching team, uh, I was so pumped that we happened to be in this particular story on Easter week. It's very appropriate. 11 verses. So, I'm going to read it right now, starting in Matthew 22, verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us, the first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Okay, that's the Sadducees' question for Jesus, which raises all kinds of other questions about what kind of dysfunctional family this hypothetical story is about, but we'll save that. Um, And then verse 29, Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, let me paint the backdrop here. This is just days before Jesus is crucified. In the last chapter, Matthew 21, Jesus pulls a couple of public stunts. First, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is a symbol of Jewish royalty, and then he steps up to the temple courts and starts clearing it out, like turning over tables that belong to unethical merchants, Like there was unfair trade happening, the rich were benefiting off the poor, and Jesus just wouldn't have it. And this was Jesus demonstrating another symbol of his authority. So, it's no wonder that Israel's corrupt leaders come up to Jesus first thing the next morning, challenging Jesus' authority. They're like, Jesus, who do you think you are? Pulling all these public stunts. Um, And Jesus tells them who he thinks he is, using parables which was a favorite teaching style of Jesus. And Jesus basically says, I'm summing up here, in three parables, he says this, I am the son of Israel's God, the rightful ruler of Israel and the world. My father, the God of Israel, is going to throw me a worldwide resurrection feast you're not going to want to miss, where everyone is invited to join me and live forever. But you, Israel's corrupt unbelieving leaders, you, since you're dead set against me, you're going to miss out on this resurrection feast entirely. And of course, Israel's leaders did not appreciate this message. So they try to trap Jesus, which is where we get to the middle of chapter 22, where we're at now. Two groups come up to Jesus at the same time to try to trap Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees tried to trap Jesus with a question about politics, because if you want to get someone in trouble, you just start debating politics. That's just what you do. And if you want to hear more about them and that story, you can listen to last week's podcast uh, on the politics of Jesus is the name of that episode. And and that, But now the Sadducees, the other camp, is coming to Jesus. So who are these guys? This is really important. Unlike the rest of the Jews, the Sadducees were a unique sect of Jews that denied the supernatural. They denied miracles. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They were Moses-only Jews. In other words, they loved the first five books of the Old Testament, and they basically ignored the rest. Like from Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and on, they were like, no, we don't accept that as Bible. So, they were kind of like red letter only people today, like modern religious people that say, yeah, Jesus, we liked some of what Jesus says in the gospels, some beautiful things, but then Paul comes along and spoils Christianity or whatever. (laughs) I don't know if you know any Christians like that. These Sadducees were a lot like them. Um, And also, the Sadducees were at the center of culture and power. I mean, they ran the temple. They ran the temple. So, if you hung out long enough in the big city of Jerusalem with the wealthy influencers, uh, eventually you would run into the Sadducees. They loved Greek culture and Roman money and they were driven by it. You see, for the most part in Jesus' day, Jewish people believed that one day their bodies would be resurrected forever, like back from the dead, out of the ground. They believed this as a community. And this would happen when God comes to heal the world once and for all, but not the Sadducees. They were this elite minority that took on a secular lens, a secular view of the world. And they believed when we die, our bodies and souls just vanish the end. And they took their cues more from culture than from the scriptures. The Sadducees actually fit right in with the rest of the ancient world at the time. Um, the world in Jesus' day it was an interesting world. Like we tend to think ancient minds, are, were, we tend to think they were simple and flat and everyone kind of f- thought the same way about everything, but that's not at all how it was. It was a lot like today. Like many cultures were asking the question, what happens after death? What happens when a person dies? There were dozens of views back then, just like there are now, about life after death. and The ancient Egyptians, for example, you can Wikipedia this, there's a book you can read called The Egyptian Book of the Dead, and in this book you see graphic depictions of what happens after death according to the ancient Egyptian worldview. And I mean, pictures in pyramids and inscriptions on tombs and sarcophaguses, sarcophagi, I don't know what the correct plural is, but they all said the same thing. All kinds of wacky, disembodied afterlife stuff is possible, but the Egyptians all agreed, nobody comes back from the dead. That doesn't happen. There is no resurrection. And and the Greeks were similar. They specifically taught there is no resurrection. All their plays and novels and some of the most amazing Greek stories talk about heroes wishing their loved ones could come back from the dead. But in the end, the message is clear in Greek thought resurrection doesn't happen, even though everyone wishes it would. And the Romans were similar. They they actually had a saying that they inscribed on their tombstones, non fui, fui, non sum, non curo, in Latin, which means, I was not, then I was, now I am not, I don't care. <laughs> Can you imagine someone writing that on their tombstone now? Like, I didn't exist. Then I existed. Now I don't exist. Who gives a care? This was literally written on a bunch of Roman tombstones back then. And uh, so in ancient secular culture, there there was this widespread idea and it was basically universal. There is no resurrection. I mean, there were a few idealistic poets and self-proclaimed prophets and philosophers who thought there might be something good. But for the average person in the world, life was tough. And the sooner it's over, the better. The question was around a lot, can people come back from the dead? But every answer was like, nope. Even though we'd love for that to happen, we know it just doesn't. And get this, in the middle of all of these cultures, in this little armpit of the Roman Empire called Galilee and Judea, there was a group of people called Jews, a backwater Culture of Jews who believed against the grain of the rest of the world that God the Creator would physically raise his human family back from the dead on the final day. And here's what's amazing about this when God came into the world as a human, he came as one of these Jews. Even the Incarnation declares the resurrection. God did not come as a Greek philosopher or a Roman legionary or an Egyptian pharaoh. God came as a Jewish son of a peasant who identified as a resurrection-believing Jew. The incarnation declares resurrection is real. Jesus agreed with the Jewish belief in resurrection against the grain of secular culture. But get this. Now he's talking to the Sadducees and the Sadducees are this little elite minority of Jews who caved in to secular pressure and denied the resurrection with the rest of the secular world. And so Jesus goes head to head with them on this. And in verse 24 of Matthew 22, the Sadducees ask this really bizarre question about marriage and reproduction and resurrection because the Sadducees only believed you lived after death through your children. Uh, And so they ask this question, if a woman has a husband who dies without kids and she marries his brother and he dies without kids, and this goes on and on until all the brothers die without kids, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, Jesus? And so remember, they don't believe in a resurrection. Their mind is already made up when they come to Jesus, which means what? They weren't asking an honest question, which is a huge problem When you come to Jesus and you already have your mind made up and you're not humble and authentic. And here's where I just want to pause for a second. And again, if you're not a believer in Jesus, or if you are, or if you don't know how you even label yourself, it doesn't matter. Listen, God welcomes all questions, all kinds of doubt. When you come honestly, there's a way to doubt faithfully and a way to doubt unfaithfully. What's the difference? Well, if you already come to God with your mind made up, you're not coming honestly. If I come to God to challenge God and not to actually learn, Lord, are you there? Is, is resurrection real? Is there really hope? Lord, speak to me. If my heart is true and pure, my goodness, the church is the place for that kind of questioning and doubting. It's when you come dishonestly. It's when I already make up my mind about who God is, and then I come uh, with a chip or a challenge for God. This is the way the Sadducees came. They didn't come to Jesus honestly. They were trying to use ancient Jewish marriage laws to make Jesus look stupid. And so Jesus responds with this. Jesus replied, Are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. So when Jesus says, Are you not in error? that's a single Greek word that literally means you're being led astray. It's the Greek word planesthe. It just means you're being led astray. And it's a powerful word, it's a warning. So, as these progressive, secularized Sadducees, they're debating marriage and life and the hot-button topics of sexuality, reproduction, and the afterlife or whatever, Jesus is like, no, no, you are being led astray. Why? Because you don't know the scriptures. You haven't gone to the scriptures as sufficient for you. You haven't gone to the scriptures as enough for you, and you don't know the power of God. I mean, let's face it, when Jesus looks at you and says, you don't know the Bible or the power of God, you're sad. That's just like a bummer. I wonder how many times in our lives when we've been in error or our hearts are less than full. Maybe you're listening to this right now and it's the week after Easter, the first week of a seven-week Easter season. Spring is in the air. Life is Is flowing through your veins, but your soul just feels lean and hungry. I wonder how often that's because, like the Sadducees, we do not know the scriptures. We don't know the power of God. And listen, maybe it's because you haven't come honestly to the scriptures. Or maybe uh, you're driven by your own experience or your own intelligence. Sometimes we're just like the Sadducees and we pick and choose what parts of the Bible we want to live under. There's so many ways we see life distorted and eternity distorted and meaning distorted and sexuality distorted and relationships distorted because we don't know the scriptures and we haven't experienced the power of God. According to Jesus here in Matthew 22, not knowing the scriptures leads to not knowing the power of God in your life. And when when I come to the scriptures honestly and humbly, I'm stepping into a living experience of God and a faith that is grounded in God's power. The library of scripture is story after story of the power of God breaking into human history. And according to Jesus, knowing the scriptures leads directly to knowing God's power in your own life. And so that's why Jesus answers the Sadducees. He says, you are in error. You're being led astray because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he says, why for them? At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. He's clearing up, he's clearing up a bunch of misconceptions about the afterlife in his day. And then verse 31, he says, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. What Jesus is doing here is so brilliant. He's pointing to the Sadducees' favorite Bible verse, Moses, Exodus 3, the burning bush story. How many of you know Prince of Egypt, the burning bush? It's a very famous story, even if you didn't even grow up in the church. um, It's in all the famous movies or whatever. And the way Jesus does this is profound. He says to the Sadducees, Have you not read what God said to you? This is amazing. Jesus is letting us in on his view of scripture, what Jesus thinks the Bible is in verse 31. When Jesus says, hey, Sadducees, haven't you read what God said to you? Jesus is saying the words of the Bible didn't just come to their first audience. They did for sure, but not just No, God's words keep on coming to anyone who will listen in humility. So, like, right now, today, um, right here in 21st century San Diego, as you come to the scriptures in humility, Jesus is saying, Jesus believes that this is God speaking to you. You see, when the Sadducees quote the Bible, they say, Moses said. And when Jesus quotes scripture, he says to them, God said. And listen, don't get me wrong. Of course, both are true. Scripture is always a dual authorship thing. The Bible, quote me on this, the Bible is both a thoroughly human book and a fully divine book. It's thoroughly human. God does not bypass the broken, narcissistic tendencies of its characters and its authors. However, at the same time, the scriptures are fully divine. They're the only library of text in the world, as Christians claim, that are actually inspired texts by God. And obviously, within the Christian tradition, there's a little bit of debate as to which books um, are canonized and which aren't. But Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox Christians all agree that the 66 books of the Protestant canon belong in whatever canon you subscribe to. And so, the Bible is both fully human and fully divine. But what I want to point out here is the secularized Sadducees, they thought of Scripture as sort of this idolized Moses, but Jesus thought of Scripture as God speaking, both human and divine. And this dual authorship view is Jesus' view of Scripture. It's what we call a high view of Scripture. And what's interesting when you look at church history is that a high view of Scripture always returns whenever you see the church thriving. It's beautiful. And so the Scriptures are always both a human speaking and God speaking. And so the question today is, what is God speaking Verse 32, listen to this. Jesus says, But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus sees the resurrection in the very name of God. See, here's how this works. Jesus quotes God speaking to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham in the present tense. So the question becomes, but wait, wasn't Abraham dead like 500 years before Moses? So how could God be the present tense God of Abraham? Shouldn't he say, I was the God of Abraham? And so here's where Jesus' resurrection logic is so important. In the beginning of the Bible story, God made a promise to Abraham and his descendants that they would all receive a blessing forever. So, so who are Abraham's descendants? This is where you come in, listener. <laughs> Abraham's descendants are all God's people throughout history, Israel before Jesus and the church after Jesus. So, every church that worships Abraham's God, that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit revealed in Jesus Christ. Every church that worships Abraham's God is children of Abraham which means are ongoingly eternally receiving God's promise of blessing forever. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. It's a big one. We humans tend to die. Is that shocking to you? Hopefully not. We humans tend to die. So how can we receive God's promise once we're dead? Since God can't break a promise, and since God is stronger than death, therefore, here's Jesus' logic, in order for all of Abraham's children to receive God's promised blessing forever, God has to raise us from the dead. He has to. In God's mind, the only acceptable solution to our death problem is our resurrection. This is the shape of hope. And Jesus doesn't just go to some obscure text to try to prove this. He goes to the most famous text where God is first revealed... To God's people, Moses and the burning bush. Jesus shows from that story that if God's name is to be taken seriously, then there has to be a resurrection from the dead for everyone who puts their trust in his name. It's so profound, it's so beautiful. And Jesus drives this point home in verse 32. He says, God is not the God of corpses, but of living people always. You see, resurrection is God's refusal to abandon you even in death. Everyone, everyone who admits their need for forgiveness and healing and puts their trust in the name of Jesus, Jesus is telling us that the shape of our hope is a physical, eternal resurrection from death in a fully renewed and healed world where heaven, God's space, and earth, our space, are joined together again forever. This is the shape of our hope. This is what everyone, and I mean everyone, is invited into. A lot of people think the main religious question is like, where do we go when we die? Or like, is there an afterlife or whatever? But you see, the central hope of the New Testament is not about where we go when we die. It's about when we will rise from the dead to be with Jesus in this world, when He heals and renews it with His perfect judgment and power. Jesus' goal was not to save us and like whisk us away into some heavenly place, disembodied, far away from this doomed earth, like somewhere else or whatever. No, Jesus' goal was not to like save us and whisk us away into some disembodied heavenly place far away from this doomed earth somewhere else or whatever. No, Jesus' resurrection is all about renewing this earth and using the church to bring about God's kingdom until the king himself comes once and for all and we rise from death to meet him and live forever with him here in a renewed earth. it's So beautiful, so much more beautiful um, than we could hope. The earliest Christians look forward to this resurrection with a passion and a boldness in the face of violent persecution because they witnessed Jesus rise from the dead, and it validated everything Jesus ever taught. And the earliest Christians, they said it like this. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I love Paul's humility there. <laughs> and this is the good news. This is what the New Testament authors call the euangelion in Greek, or the gospel in English. The creator of the world has come into the world in Jesus. The maker is among us and he preached the kingdom of God, a new way of living. He didn't just preach, you pray a prayer so you could go float away to heaven when you die. No, he preached a new way of living that reflects the goodness, the character of the creator. And then Jesus died for our sins. The ways we didn't match up with the character of the creator, Jesus paid for those mistakes and sins and failures. And then he forgave those who killed him modeling the Creator's compassion. And then, as if to say yes to everything Jesus was, God raised Jesus from death to bring the promise of ultimate victory over death for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And this is what it means to be saved. Listen, I don't know where you're at or where you're listening to this, but this is is the gospel for you. This is the great news that changes lives, billions of lives throughout history. Everyone who admits their need for forgiveness and believes and obeys Jesus' teachings, we are saved. We're saved. We become disciples, to use the New Testament's language. We become Jesus' apprentices. We become His church, His kingdom people On the earth. And the way we step into Jesus' kingdom is through the waters of baptism. Baptism is the gateway to discipleship, to the kingdom of God, which is amazing. Um, We love doing baptisms as a church. We've done it a couple times now. I want to do it more often. If you've never been baptized and you want to follow Jesus and step into not just the baptism waters, But you want to come out of the water as a renewed person and step into community with other Christians who are walking with Jesus so you can follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus outside of Jesus' community. You just can't. As the early church Desert Fathers said, one Christian is no Christian. You cannot do this thing alone. So if you've never been baptized, please, it would be amazing if you reached out to us. ParkHillSD.Church is our website. Just click contact reach out to us. We would love to set up a baptism. Our church finally bought a little pool, baptistry, <laughs> which we filled up on Easter. And again, 13 people followed Jesus. My son, who's 17, he baptized a friend of his from school, uh, another 17-year-old. It was beautiful to watch. Um, i proud of the guy. So, that is the Easter message. Resurrection awaits everyone who puts their trust in Abraham's God. And the good news is that Abraham's God has personally come to us in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus' life and his death on the cross and his forgiveness on the cross and his resurrection, he's paved the way so that we could follow him. We could live like him and we can forgive like him and receive forgiveness. Thanks so much for listening. Again, if there's any way the leadership of Park Hill Church can make you feel more welcome or better serve you, please don't hesitate to reach out via email. Just look us up on our website, parkhillsd.church.